millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm going to take you back to Britain in 1997. Hmm. A couple of important things that happened. What do you think of when you think of Britain in 1997? It's maybe like just after the peak of Oasis. Mm. Oh, yeah. Words. Yeah, I think like the the English football team at the time was was very good, but never quite never quite got there. Um, was it 98? When was Southgate's penalty? 96. 96. 96. Yeah. Uh, um, Beckham's red card was... 98. Was yeah. The okay. South, they lost on penalties in 98 as well. Yeah, but that wasn't Southgate. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Someone else. Yeah. I, remember, uh, I think it was David Batty who missed mm. in 98. Mm. <laughs> Yours truly was born in Britain in 1997. Of course. Big oversight. Unbelievable. Princess Diana did die in 1997. Oh, oh my. <laughs> Rest in peace. Yeah. And Tony... You never used your thorns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, my mind went straight to the uh, the David Brent anthem for... Uh, for my good night, my sweet princess, well, as he sings. Funny you say that because my opening question for today's pod was going to be... What do you think is the best British export from 1997 to 2007? Mm. Would you have gone for Oasis? Would you have gone for the English national football team? Well, it has to be you now, right? Or it has to be the, 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 the office. That's perhaps. what I was going to go for. <laughs> <laughs> That's I, I, I guess, yeah. yeah, I am an exporter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gareth Keenan specifically is probably their like, best. I don't know, maybe well, like no, a, he's technically an import because he's Irish. Oh, is he? Oh, okay. There you go. Who is the best character in the British office? Gareth Keenan's Irish. Okay. Yes, I've had office romances. <laughs> uh, is what about Keith? Is he is he English? We should play actually. We before cameo was like a thing. We got Keith from the UK office to give a shout out to Py and to Harry mm, for there. And obviously now, if you, get, if you get a cameo, it's like oh that's cool. Uh, you paid some money to a celebrity at the time. It was like wow, how do you know Keith? That was just yeah, you just. That was a cold call, wasn't it? You just reached out and... Is that how you did it? No, nah, he was on something? like one of the primitive versions of Cameo oh, okay. before it became... Yeah. yeah. Best present ever. Was <laughs> <laughs> like a like a food? Maybe like a, a Lipton iced tea. When did that come out to Australia? Mm. I don't really like that. <laughs> <laughs> but other people do. <laughs> Man of the people. You're happy for them. Could you think of a British food that came out to Australia? Well, I'm still waiting for Tesco meal deals to come out to Australia. That would be good, wouldn't it? I would, yeah. yeah. I'd froth on that. I think I'm not even like to even put David Beckham in that bracket. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, he's done so much for the world. <laughs> he deserves the knighthood, really. Yeah. Mm. Is Ronan Keating English? 
He's touchy Irish. tough, touchy He's topic. He's Irish. Irish. Yeah, okay. That's um, yeah. Might want to <laughs> not say that to him. Yeah, sorry, Ronan. I mean, yeah, if you music, I, should, I say right. best when I say nothing at all. Really. Yeah, <laughs> um, I should have kept that to myself. Speaking of that ilk, maybe, maybe even more. So maybe Robbie Williams. Mm. Yeah, Spice Girls. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, when I think nineties England, I think Spice Girls. Mm. Art, sport, mm. it's all happening. <laughs> A hub of culture. No one says Tony Blair, which uh, is which is a bit sad. It's pretty crazy. He's the longest ever serving Labour Prime Minister in the UK. Yeah. Okay. One of the one of the longest ever serving Prime Ministers and he's still alive today. He's How long s- did he serve? 10 years. Okay. Or maybe 11 if you stretch it out over start to end of 2007. Mm-hmm. So, start of 97 to end yep. of 2007. Yep. So, he's a pretty significant person in UK history. Like he's basically their version of John Howard but for the other party and he has nowhere near the standing in UK politics that John Howard has in Australian politics. Mm. There's some similarities because both were involved in Iraq. They've got Iraq kind of haunting over their legacy. But Tony Blair is uni- not universally, but is mostly viewed as negative in the UK. But he won one landslide or two landslide elections and then won pretty resounding win in 2005. He never lost an election, so he went out on his own terms, yet he's pretty much remembered as a villain. He's gotten a little bit more popular recently since Boris and people have kind of nostalgia for Mm -hmm. the early 2000s, but he's pretty universally viewed as negative by both the Tories and pretty much most of Labor as well, which is fascinating considering Mm -hmm. how popular he was in the beginning and just what a titan he was of UK politics. So to understand the rise of Tony Blair, we have to go back to the 1980s. Who's in power in the UK in the 1980s? Can I have a, a first name or a second name? <laughs> <laughs> or both, dare I say. <laughs> uh, I'll go one better. I'll give you a gender. Oh, oh Thatcher. Thatcher. Margaret. So Thatcher the is in... Iron lady. <laughs> yes, from 79 to 1990. And she dominates the political scene in the UK in the 1980s. And basically she pushes this really heavy anti-union agenda... Um, conservative politics becomes almost cool and popular and and that kind of what we'd call neoliberal economic policy, that's pretty common across the board. They're doing Reaganomics over in America. Even our Labor Party in Australia, so Keating and Hawke, uh, have pushing a very privatised model. They privatise the Commonwealth Bank, they float the Aussie dollar and they kind of come up with the accord with the unions to more or less limit their power quite strongly. So the union movement takes a massive blow in the 1980s and there's some in the 1980s that were speculating that that would be the end of the Labor Party, period. That the mm. Labor Party was gone and that they'd have no road back because they just kept losing massive landslide election after massive landslide election to the Conservative Party in the UK. Now, in the 1980s, there's two Labor MPs that kind of make their way into Labor and try and reform it, one of which is Tony Blair, the other is another future Prime Minister of the UK called Gordon Brown. Mm-hmm. Might remember that name before. So he's in for about three years after Tony Blair. Now, basically, in the 1980s, they're like, okay, we need to reform the Labor Party. We need to make it basically more modern and more appealing because in the 80s, right, teenagers are no longer into kind of means of production or reading socialist thought. They're into like Star Wars. And in the 90s, they'd be into <laughs> Pokemon. And they like, again, 
completely. Men just, have two moods, you know, means of production and Star Wars. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's just all we are. <laughs> you know, actually, I um, I would, did a Secret Santa last night, and the gift that I ended up with was the Communist Manifesto. Wow! <laughs> so, there you go. Corporate Secret Santa? No, no, <laughs> friend Secret Santa. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just. So there you go. I'm um, obviously in my, um, you know, my means of production era. Yeah, you've exited um, the Star Wars fan. <laughs> yeah, you're either, you're either into real politics or you're into galactic politics. There's exactly. kind of no middle ground. Yeah, episode one is my favourite for sure. That's the political, <laughs> just the machinations are crazy. Uh, well, speaking of trade federations, basically in the 80s, the Labor Party had to massively rebrand itself because they kept losing elections. The first thing they've got to do is they've got to ditch the red flag. Because that's just associated with mm. communism. The Soviet Union's clearly on the decline and is on its last days. So they replaced the red flag with a rose. Pretty mm. sensible move. I've been advocating for the Labor Party to change its colour since forever. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't be the red party. That just gives people the wrong, wrong opinions. But they keep losing. And Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, they are basically the advocates of we need to change this party. Now, in the Labor kind of rule book that was in place... There was something really controversial called Clause 4. Clause 4, back in 1959, the Labor leader tried to get rid of Clause 4. Clause 4 basically said that we are committed to socialism and committed to nationalising our industries. So rather than having everything privatised, we have it controlled by the government. And he tried to remove Clause 4. It was unsuccessful. He then died not related to the cause, uh, mm. died of like a, a lupus flare-up. And then a guy called Harold Wilson comes in, pretty famous British Prime Minister, and he's the Prime Minister for most of the 60s and a little two-year stint in the 70s. Harold Wilson comes in and Harold Wilson's like, that's too hot to touch. I just won't nationalise anything, but I won't touch that clause because our party will reject me if I do that. But there's this growing idea in the Labor movement that we've got to get rid of Clause 4. Because that is just so unsexy being like, yeah, we need to nationalise rail. Mm. We need to nationalise the mines or whatever. And so basically there's this whole uproar about what to do. We fast forward to 1992. Thatcher's gone. She resigns. She, she leaves in her own terms. Mm. Have you ever heard of a guy called John Major? He is in no. the Crown. Huh. Ground control to Major Tom. <laughs> Major Major John John Mayer perhaps (laughs) (laughs) He's British I think Um, No Is John Mayer British Or is he American He's American Oh man Yeah Well how sad for John Major He was a Prime Minister For a long time So seven years Okay He's universally considered One of the most forgettable Prime Ministers But he was in for What Basically Longer than Churchill At least At least In one of Churchill's stints Mm. And He's famous for getting the Google search misspelt for John Mayer. That's... Oh, really? Well, like... I see, I see, I see. No one knows who he is. But yeah. Like, yeah. Outside, of, obviously, people in the UK know who he is. But from an Australian millennial Gen Z listing in, most of us wouldn't know who John Major is. Hmm. So John Major, he takes over from Margaret Thatcher. Thatcher is universally held in quite high esteem because she's uh, quite clearly a very strong leader, um, though a lot of the world would reject kind of her privatisation principles, but she's clearly um, strong, very good at at negotiating and is quite a popular person in certain parts of the UK. John Major has next to no charisma whatsoever. He's a very boring guy. (laughs) And so people are expecting him to lose the 1992 election 
and they're like, this is Labor's chance to get back in. Unfortunately for Labor, they actually lose. And when they're expected to beat John Major, John Major holds on and he actually secures another conservative term. So now they've been in since 1979 and they're going to be in until at least 1997. Mm-hmm. Labor decides to change leader and they put in a guy called John Smith. <laughs> 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 and I'm going to make you feel it's bad for real. laughing because then he dies of a heart attack. Ah, John. Um, <laughs> poor guy. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Are you just, just like John Smith, quintessential British man, right? Yeah. I mean, that's quite, that's literally the fake name that you get. Yeah. 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 He's the example when you're filling in fields. Yeah. His, his angle was that he's the common man. And mm. basically, like, it's like before the NPC meme existed, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was, I'm an NPC. Mm. And John, I was going to say John Mayer, not John Mayer, not John Major, John Smith. A lot of Johns in this story here. John Smith died of a heart attack, which then created an opening for the new Labor leader. You know, once a friend in high school, um, we were talking about like the most popular names and he was like, so I was like, oh, I, I hear like that Smith is like the most popular surname in the world. And he was like, oh, I heard that Muhammad is the most popular first name in the world. Super bad. So then he's like. So there's the most popular name is Muhammad Smith. <laughs> that was his conclusion. <laughs> yeah, you're the mathematician here. Discuss the probabilities. On. Yeah, yeah. Um, that all checks out. <laughs> Who am I to argue with him? That was a great joke. <laughs> Isn't super bad? Yeah. That reference is like Muhammad Smith. He's, no, he's like. I was tossing up between that and Muhammad. Oh, yeah. right. Why would you choose Muhammad? <laughs> <laughs> was the most comfortable. Sorry, yes. So I'm more of a Gilbert Taylor guy. Man. <laughs> yeah. Landed on McLovin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so 1994, John Smith dies and that creates an opening for the leadership. So there was a couple of names as to who it could be. One of which was John Prescott. Another was Margaret Beckett. Again, so lots of John, lots of Margaret's in this story. Yeah. I promise there are other names that exist. But the main two contenders are Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. Mm. Now, basically, they bonded over the fact that they were the two young MPs in the 1980s. Gordon Brown's from Scotland. And then Tony Blair... So Gordon Brown's kind of got the union political background. He did university politics and all that sort of thing. Tony Blair's background is that he's a barrister. So he's got much less Labor credentials, um, more so he's got legal credentials. And together, Gordon Brown kind of shares the political know-how while Tony Blair has the charisma. And t- together they kind of work together and are quite effective power brokers in the Labor Party. And so the question is, who's going to be the Prime Minister or who's going to be the Labor leader between those two, Tony Blair or Gordon Brown? And they actually have a non-aggression pact, meaning that Tony Blair will be the leader, Gordon Brown will be his deputy, and in return, Tony Blair will hand on leadership to Gordon Brown one day. Mm. Now, they start get, getting ready for the 1997 election. And as they get ready, Tony Blair hosts a Labor conference and he calls it New Labor. Mm. New Year, New Labor. <laughs> he secures the dropping of Clause 4. Wow. The Labor Party is now no longer committed to the nationalization of industries. And basically that's massive. And so Tony Blair gets up there and he's like, yep, Clause 4 is gone and we're going to commit ourselves to the radical centre. And that's more or less him giving kind of the signal of, 
hey, you can actually vote for an alternative party besides the Conservative Party and you won't have to worry about industry being nationalised or anything like that. You don't have to commit yourself to some kind of like Marxist revolution. Um, it's just a party that's to the left of the Conservative Party and a much more moderate party will just properly publicly fund our resources and our services and will make sure that everyone is well resourced. That's his argument. Now, what was, what were your slogans for being school captain in primary school again? Um, mine was doing my best for BBPS. Mine was a bit more personalised. <laughs> it was, I think I couldn't decide between two, so I tried to get them both on there. It was uh, Jake, Jake, the icing on the cake. <laughs> and... See why you should vote for PY. <laughs> I don't know if it was like, come and see why. <laughs> it's like, let me show you. Have we seen in a primary school campaign, have you ever seen a, a, rather than a vague slogan, a specific slogan of just like real policy oh. reform <laughs> rather than just vague things about leadership? I'm trying to think of my time. I don't think I... <laughs> Remember anyone? I remember the bro with the fro. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's policy, right there. <laughs> Tony Blair's slogan was. Oh wait, should we workshop a slogan for Tony Blair? <laughs> okay, okay. So, if your policy is on making the schooling system better, how would you turn that into a slogan? Mm. <laughs> Get up, rhyme zone. Blair's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> bears. I'm just thinking like Tony Blair Waldorf. That's kind of where my <laughs> mind went, but it's not schooling related. <laughs> I'm a bad boss. I get stuff done. <laughs> Queen B. <laughs> I think Tony Blair Waldorf would still beat Tony Blair's slogan. Here's radical slogan. You get three words, right? So you've got to be really punchy. Maybe you could be like, it's blaringly obvious. Might Ooh, be what I'd go good. for. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's sort of, it's sort of, it's, un- it's vague. It's unclear. <laughs> What's obvious? It's the, not, the it's irony. Not obvious. <laughs> the slogan is veiled. It has to be three words. Yeah, like, I don't think you get stronger together, make America great again. Like, all the good ones uh, don't go over three that I can think of. Jobs and growth. I guess so. Maybe like. It's not like a ma- set rule, though. More. Oh, no. You know, it's not, there's yeah. no maximum word count. <laughs> so, like, adjudicator that comes out. Yeah, <laughs> but that's could, an illegal campaign. Could be like, fair. Cl- fair care oh, Blair I'm, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm thinking something like Blair's Britain now uh, like Care Blair like, like yeah <laughs> Blair in the big blue <laughs> I can go with Is that, that Australian? <laughs> I think so yeah. Otherwise that would be up there for the best exports <laughs> If, if, if he was in America, Blair in the big White House might be able to like... Well, that's cutting a lot of... <laughs> yeah, play some different angles there. Um, his policy was education, education, education. Oh, oh, like the TV show Location, Location, Location. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Do you reckon, is that what he's... Got? Was that around at the time? Do you reckon that's what he's... That also is another good British export. <laughs> well, David um, McBride was on TV during... The, yeah. When we spoke to David McBride about this, yeah. he was on reality TV during Tony Blair's era, so he's probably the person to talk to about. Mm. Do you think 
before there was a like a, a TV show called Location Location, and then a rival show wanting to do the similar thing was like, uh, we'll get you here. <laughs> I raise you. Location, location, location. <laughs> no one's since been brave enough to, uh, to add the fourth. So basically, Tony Blair, he has since admitted that he. I like it. Went on. He basically, his logic was this. He was like, John Major's going to go stale. If we go radical, that's a risk. I mean, you know what his priority is. Exactly. Mm, yeah. And he's like, let's just do something that we know we can deliver on straight away and something where we're not promising the world, but also something where it's kind of hard to argue with. Mm. And so basically- you know, Education is the world. You know, it, it's, uh, yeah. Mm. And so it's a pretty generic and basic policy that he's advocating for. And again, all the things that he could push for, he basically just goes, properly fund services, we're going to be moderate, not radical, and we believe that education is important. And because he's quite charismatic and John Major is quite boring, um, that all contributes, again, the Conservative Party, they've had their lifespan of, what, nearly 18 years in government. That's longer than most governments get in a lifespan. So in 1997, it's a landslide win for Tony Blair. So... Labor wins 418 to 165. Mm. There was a 146 swing towards Labor. So 146 seats flipped from being conservative to being Labor, which is that's, that's, that's the entirety yeah. of the Australian Parliament, basically. Yeah. Um, and it's weird because th- there are certain pockets of the UK that will never change from being Labor. So you go, you go to Liverpool and you won't see many Tory seats there, and then uh, vice versa in certain pockets of London. But to take 146 seats is massive. And so basically Tony Blair came into government really popular. The first big test that he had was obviously Princess Diana's death. And there's not really much to say there in terms of policy, but basically the nation just needed leadership. Mm. And again, that's where we kind of go to our school captain vague. He called, he called out the queen. Did he call out the queen? He, not doing a response. He just he, well, it was more by less by what he said more sorry less by what he said about the queen more by what he said about Diana. He called Diana the people's princess. Oh yes. By that was point, that his, was but, that his term? That yeah. He coined? Mm, yeah. Okay. But the family didn't really the royal family didn't hold her in a regard of well she was royalty. She was divorced yeah. from Charles by that so point. Like she doesn't mm. deserve a royal send off. Mm. Mm. Season six of the Crown. Yeah. I, I haven't. I need to watch the final well, season. Yeah, I mean, we'll get a bit of Tony Blair. Yeah, because he was the at the, he was the second the, part comes out tomorrow. It will be out by the time people are listening. So, and he was in the back at the back end of season five. So, anyway, um, basically, the deal was that Gordon Brown became the Chancellor of the Exchequer. That's their treasurer. So, Gordon Brown gets a lot of control over monetary policy. Their relationship becomes a lot more fraught during their time in office because they're two big shots with both their own opinion. And the kind of quote goes, the prince was waiting for the king to die and the king never died. Mm. And so Gordon Brown's getting a little bit <coughs> bit concerned that the like, Labor's time will be up before he gets to become prime minister. And something that he always struggled with was the public didn't like that he quite clearly felt he had a divine right to be the prime minister. Mm. And that was something that put the public off Gordon Brown quite quickly. You might be surprised to learn this. It wasn't until the 1990s that Britain introduced a national minimum wage. And that was under Tony Blair. Real kind of hangover of the Industrial Revolution, really. They never yeah. seemed to quite get uh, get the wages right for the common man. And it's weird because the UK was a heavily, heavily unionised part of the world, but their party was never in power pretty much yeah. for most of the time. Whereas in Australia, the Labor Party had a significantly longer time in the sun and was really powerful at the state level. So we kind of had our... 
wage requirements much better cared for than than over in the UK. But yeah, it wasn't until Tony Blair that we saw a national minimum wage. Hmm. Do you ever work a minimum wage job? No, I don't think so. I, I skipped that. Yeah, I never really did the retail circuit. I think refereeing might have been my first. I mean, that could have been minimum wage when you think about it. I mean, I think it's technically illegal. That was just cash in hand. Yeah, ruble. Did you oh, ever did no, no, did no, Oh, you did actually black like and white. A, a black and white yeah. referee, yeah. Did you do ruble? No, I didn't do yeah, ruble. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that'd be minimum wage, you know, if they're factoring the soft drink as part of your salary. You know, <laughs> <laughs> True. $5 in a drink was the... The yeah, salary. Actually, I'm, I'm really sorry. I can't remember the. No, you're right. Five dollars in a drink is correct. Soft drink. I uh, got a bit more. Creaming soda. I reckon I'd go I got for. a bit. I reckon I got a bit more than five bucks. Yeah, probably inflation by the time you're in. I remember when a friend told me, like when I was like eight or something, that that's what they got. I'm like, poh, sign yeah, me up. That's yeah. Yeah. I think with the Zappos, I could get. I once caught a game intentionally. I had my timer on. I caught it about ten minutes early, and ten minutes early for under sixes is pretty much. A five-minute second half. Why have you done that? Because I wanted to go. I had there was a clash, a schedule clash with my mates, so I wanted to go hang out with my mates. <laughs> I didn't want to be late, but I also wanted to get my creaming soda along the way. And I could just hear the parents go like, "They hang these guys caught it early," and the kids were upset. Kids don't have a concept of time. I thought I could get away with it. And I just crash landed this like perfect heist that I thought I could pull off. <laughs> How old were you? Oh, like 13, 14. Yeah, okay. So you got away with it. So you got away with it. I mean, what were they going to do? Like, report a 13-year-old for misconduct? Uh, no one was like, hey, mate, we've still got more time. No, I think I just bounced before they even got pulled up. <laughs> I mean, if you're a parent and you remember that day in 2011 no, or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what is stitch up? Yeah. That's <laughs> pretty rogue. Hey, I wasn't on minimum wage. I, yeah. I, I'm going to go no, on strike. I'm, it was yeah, really yeah. my first industrial action. Yeah. That, yeah. that was cash in hand. I remember I got paid to, like kind of set up the fields as well um for the for this local summer soccer comp and that was also cash mm. and mm, yeah i don't think yeah i was on a minimum wage gig i was a produce boy at Superman, so yeah, i like yeah. replaced the produce mm. morale was pretty pretty low in that workplace mm. yeah um so it's age dependent right the minimum wage yeah yeah, yeah of course yeah. Um, so yeah. So obviously, if you're a 15 year old, your minimum wage entitlement is much lower than an 18 year old. Hence, yeah. Macus's Macus's so business model. Was, yeah. I yeah. was definitely never the minimum minimum wage. Yeah. Mm. No, I was on um I was on 12 dollars an hour and I was 18. So yeah, I was there. Mm. Um, you, you bat well. Worked at yeah. Rebel. Worked at Rebel. That's my yeah. That's my credentials for being a working class boy. <laughs> <laughs> you should be a Labor Prime Minister. <laughs> this is a train driver equivalent. Well, funny as well, because Tony Blair had like an Oxford background, uh, was, uh, either Oxford or Cambridge, one of the two. Um, so he had, you know, the really, he, he wasn't a battler in any sense of the word possible, whereas Gordon Brown had those credentials um, much stronger. He, Gordon Brown's dad was a, was a pastor in Scotland of a working class suburb. And so basically they come in, they introduced the nas- national minimum wage. They could have reversed. So British Rail was in the process of being privatised. They could have reversed that, but Tony Blair decided not to stop it and he let the privatisation go ahead. But he put them, oh, he's like, basically, if you're going to go ahead and do this, what you need to do is that you are restricted to capping fare increases at 1% per annum accounting for inflation. So he tried to massively stop just this powerful company buying a railway off the government, charging ridiculous fees because there's no competition and making a killing off of it. But he did make sure that they didn't massively hike up the fees. 
they raised spending on the NHS quite a fair bit as well. So the NHS received the, and kind of the public sector, but the NHS was kind of the primary part of the public sector that received this funding. When Tony Blair came into power, the public sector received about 39.9% of GDP in terms of funding. That increased to 48.1% of GDP by the time Gordon Brown left office. So there's a significant increase in public spending. People will often talk about that the NHS received double the funding that it got at the end of Blair's time than it did at the start. That's a little misleading because of inflation, but there's a significant funding increase to the NHS particularly that was really struggling before this. And a lot of people in the NHS uh, actually have very positive feelings towards Tony Blair because of this huge spike in spending that they got. So in 2001, they pledged to bring the NHS spending in line with other European countries. um, And they actually said that, yeah, we're going to double the NHS spending that they have in England. The other important thing that Tony Blair promised was he promised a 20% reduction in CO2. And he actually said the Kyoto protocols didn't go far enough. So in terms of new labor, initially when new labor comes in, everyone's thinking this guy's just a kind of conservative sellout. And this guy has just hijacked the labor movement and he's dragged it to, to the right so far that it's not what it used to be. But in his first term in office, a lot of people were actually pleasantly refreshed by Tony Blair spending. And a lot of people were like, hey, this guy's actually done what he said he would do. He's actually properly funded public services. Sure, he hasn't nationalized any major industries or anything like that, but we're pretty happy with how he's going. And on top of that, he had some pretty huge foreign policy successes. When David McBride was on the pod, he said that he was a fan of Tony Blair in the 90s. Do you remember what foreign policy thing, well, kind of foreign, kind of domestic, do you what policy David McBride really came to love Blair for? No, I can't remember. Was it military-related? Yeah, military-related. Did they pull out of a war or something? Or was it... They resolved the war. The Troubles. <laughs> <laughs> troubles, troubles, troubles. <laughs> You're a trouble. Um, it, it, was, it was a form of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Not the Troubles, though, just a trouble. <laughs> Northern Ireland? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Oh, so I was I was close with the troubles. <laughs> 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 it's like when I have students that sometimes write, like if it's like a true or false question, they'll write troll, like this really <laughs> vague, poorly written answer so that they can justify in retrospect either way. Um, huh. So, you know, the troubles, it was a form of troubles. So the background of the story is that which part of Ireland is not part of the UK? The Republic oh, of Ireland. Ireland. Which, what direction is that? South. South. So when the UK pulled out of the Republic of Ireland, or pulled out of Southern Ireland, they still retained Northern Ireland. Obviously, a lot of Irish people weren't happy with that, particularly the Catholics that were in Ireland. In 1970, they staged a demonstration and a protest basically against the way that either Southern Irish or Catholic Irish were being treated by the UK. They kind of made a case that the UK were bad, bad faith occupiers and kind of colonial overlords. The demonstration got out of hand and I'm going to tread carefully in how I word this here because it is a really divisive issue amongst people in in the British Isles. So you have 
basically the police that retaliate to, to the demonstration that they argue got out of hand. Demonstra- demonstrators argue that it, that it didn't get out of hand at all. And then we have police that actually shot at and killed some Irish demonstrators. In retaliation to this, we see the beginning of the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. Mm-hmm. And basically they conduct a bunch of terrorist bombings, particularly throughout the 70s. The kind of the IRA's bit was around for ages. So yes, like. but that's when the 70s is their heyday. Okay. And the IRA becomes militant in the 70s. But like since post-World War One. Yeah. Post-World War One, exactly right, when Ireland got their independence. Yeah. And so basically throughout the 80s, they're, they're going to get nowhere with the resolution. Thatcher's attention is also occupied by the Falkland Island War. Mm. Then we get to the 1990s and John Major's government, it seems like they're on the verge of successful talks, but those talks actually then fail. And then Tony Blair tries to lead the next set of talks with Bill Clinton's help and they make some progress in 1998 and they come up with something called the Good Friday Agreements where basically the agreement was that the Irish paramilitaries decommission themselves. They kind of decommission their weapons and in return, the UK army will withdraw a lot of their presence from Northern Ireland and that people in Ireland can identify and have citizenship to either the UK or the Republic of Ireland, depending on where they identify. And that's kind of the agreement that Tony Blair reaches over Northern Ireland. Yeah. So Northern Ireland is like kind of surrounded by British soldiers. Yeah, because it's part their, of Britain. For their for their protection. Well, there's British soldiers in Northern Ireland because it's British territory. Yes. Yeah. But, but the, the people, amount of soldiers was yeah. greatly reduced after the Good Friday Agreements. And people in Northern Ireland, they're like, sweet. They're more chill than now. They held referendums over the... Good Friday Agreements, and it was widely popular in all parts. Yeah. So in Ireland, Republic of Ireland, Northern Ireland, Ireland, didn't want Northern Ireland to be separate. Some people, were, uh, most people were chill. Most people just yeah. didn't want war. Yeah. So most Irish were pretty apolitical, but the militant Irish felt as though they probably felt a similar way to how Palestinians feel towards Israel. Okay. So without probably the, without it being to the same extreme. Yeah. And I do want to say, Cam. You laughed at me when I said the troubles, but I was right. That says, on the Wikipedia page, the conflict began in the late 1960s and is usually deemed to have ended with the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. Why are you laughing? What? <laughs> Does that have to do with troubles? The tr- you know the troubles. Like It's like the, that period of conflict with the, the IRA and all that is called the troubles. Oh, right. I just yeah, thought you yeah. were... Oh, you thought... Okay, I just thought enough. you were trying to be vague. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's a real thing. It's... Yeah. The okay. troubles. Like, that's what it's referred to. Like the, that, like thirty years from the sixties wow. odd is, yeah. and the all the unrest and the the bombings and whatever is. I just thought you were intentionally vague. There you go. Yeah. Well, big oversight on my part. My oh, apologies. That's okay. Look at us. We're all learning. <laughs> we then have another foreign policy success, which was in Kosovo. Oh, didn't think that. Yeah. Who do you think of when you think of Kosovo? Bessart Barisha. Yeah. And there's a reason why I think that. Bessart Barisha, what's his other nationality? Is it Serbian? No, that's a big no-no. That's the big issue. Sorry. Is it? No, no, no. no, I'm I'm glad you said that because (laughs) it's going to help illustrate a point. Was it? It's not like Bosnian or anything. Close. No, but it's not. Um, Like Albanian? Albanian. So basically... We have, in the 1990s, we've got the fracturing of, of Yugoslavia. The primary group, so you've got kind of Croatia that's split, you've got your uh, Bosnian separation. The primary group that's governing Yugoslavia is Serbia and Montenegro. 
mainly out of those two, obviously mainly Serbia. And basically the Kosovan Albanians are pushing for independence as well. And their argument is we've basically been shot at and we've had um, Serbian police murder Kosovan Albanians and they kind of formed a militia group and also went to war against the Serbians like a lot of the other outskirts of Yugoslavia did. Now, Bill Clinton and Tony Blair were the two leaders at the time. Bill Clinton was a little less keen to intervene, whereas Tony Blair was very eager to intervene in that conflict. And Tony Blair basically said, we need to sort this out because we need Europe kind of cleaned up and we don't want this to escalate any further. So he sent a a force to support the Kosovans and basically they kind of reached an agreement where Kosovo would not yet get independence, but it kind of functioned as an independent territory, kind of what American Samoa is to America or what New Caledonia is to France. Mm. That's what Kosovo would be to the falling Yugoslav government. And then to the after that, the Serbian and Montenegrin government. So that's another huge success for Tony Blair. He's resolved the troubles. He's brought peace or some form of peace in Yugoslavia. And then he has one more. Sierra Leone. Oh, Mm. Not to be confused with Sarah Lee. (laughs) (laughs) That's your campaign slogan. <laughs> That's how you end the war. Glad we, glad we clarified that. <laughs> Again, that's why we're number one for educational content. Um, now, basically, Sierra Leone was in a civil war. It's a really sad story because Sierra Leone is actually quite resource rich, which you wouldn't yeah, think. Yeah, a lot of, lot of diamonds. Yes. Um, some, there's a, there's a good, good song by Kanye West called Diamonds from Sierra Leone. Wow. It kind of talks about... Um, you know, like like people are just enslaved there, just mining these and they're being like getting limbs like cut off and stuff from their poor conditions. It's quite horrific. So when he becomes president, his foreign policy will actually be a little bit nuanced because when they ask him about how you deal with Sierra Leone, he's like, cite my previous work. What's the song called? Oh, wait, sorry. You're talking about Kanye or yeah, Tony yeah. Blair? Sorry? <laughs> uh, sorry, I got a bit confused who we're talking about. Um, it's called Diamonds from Sierra Leone. Yeah. So when Kanye's running for president, he's, he's set with his body, yeah, of, yeah, like, body of work on foreign yeah, policy. Yeah, like, what are your thoughts on this? And like, been there, done that. Now. Like, <laughs> trust me, it's all, it's all there. Just read the Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they're resource rich and that obviously attracted corrupt governments that would more or less um, try and siphon rather than kind of let the nation prosper from the nation's resources will kind of capitalize on, on that trade themselves uh, and privately profit from the trade. And typically in the third world, when you've got a resource rich country, the kind of corruption comes through a military government because they're the ones with the power to actually claim control of the resources. And so more or less you had a series of a history of military coups in the country. Um, you then had a rebel group as well called the RUF that were kind of quite thuggish in how they went about things. And so every time there were democratic elections, the military would just come in and stage more or less a coup anyway. So in 1997, the president of Sierra Leone had to flee to Guinea because there was a military coup. Now, Nigerian forces then helped them actually suppress the rebels. The president could return and he made a deal where between him and the military and the RUF, they would form a coalition government together with with the president as the head. But the IUF then staged another coup. Um, But this time, Tony Blair was like, enough of this. This is just this ongoing cycle of guy gets elected, coup, guy makes compromise, coup. Um, He just sent in a force of 20,000 British soldiers and he got rid of the rebels. Mm. 
and Sierra Leone. Again, Sierra Leone, part of the Commonwealth. So it's not just this really niche country he's picked out of nowhere. But this is really important because his first three things when it comes to foreign policy are huge successes Mm. for Tony Blair. And basically, he's coming to the opinion of whenever we come up against a force less powerful, we're going to send in our military and we can fight these good moral causes and we can actually police parts of the world really well. And his argument, and he says this, he's openly said this even post-Iraq, is that he's like, yeah, why wouldn't we intervene? That's the way to stop the least amount of bloodshed possible. Intervene early and don't let it become a major conflict. And his view is that we can use the British military to actually bring the rest of the world in line. And that's going to benefit us as a country and benefit the global order as well. And he's a big believer in the power of the British army to do good. Now, 2001, very successful election for Tony Blair. If I said the name Fraser Anning, do you know who that guy was? The name rings a bell. He was a politician, wasn't he? He was. Something quite famous happened to him. That's not the guy that got egged. He was it? the guy that got egged. Yeah. So Egg Boy, um, Egg Boy, they, it's not original content. Um, Egging? Oh, no. no. Wouldn't have thought so. Because John Prescott, the um, deputy prime minister, so again, technically Gordon Brown is the deputy, but the official, so really being treasurer, that makes him deputy. But the technical deputy is John Prescott. He got egged by a protester while campaigning for the 2001 election. Um, the Conservative Party was in trouble, so they actually wheeled out Margaret Thatcher for a kind of like a kind of retirement tour. Mm. Um, and Thatcher basically said that New Labour is rootless, empty, and artificial. And then Thatcher basically kind of tried to go on this campaign rally to drive up support for the Conservative leader at the time. His name was William Hague, but the Tories lost again, four hundred and twelve to one hundred and sixty-six. Still very convincing. So Tony Blair, like after his first four years in office, is incredibly popular. People love him in the UK. He's this not quite revolutionary, but this great reformist that's clearly bringing Britain into the 21st century in a really strong place when a lot of Britain's been worried about how they've been on decline for such a long period of time. They're like, this is the guy that's kind of giving us a bit of hope again. I'd probably liken it to like Ten Hag's first season at United. Hmm. Hmm. But of course, Ten Hag had a second season. Yep. So, what else happened in 2001? 9-11. 9-11. Now, Tony Blair is heavily involved in the war on terror. And this is the thing that really mars his legacy. So, why did Bush invade Iraq? Couldn't tell you. <laughs> we did a podcast on it. <laughs> well, it was in retaliation to 9-11, wasn't it? Yeah, but what was the link between Saddam and 9-11? Yeah. Oh, was he was he funding them or something? Was that what was happening? I actually can't remember. It was a re- exactly. Sorry, sir. I swear I was paying attention. No, it was a, it was a, it was it was a really tenuous link. It was like Iraq is a haven for terrorism. It's like what's the link? Saddam had nothing to do with nine eleven, and as Saddam is kind of frequent, well, not has, but as he frequently argued before he died, he was like, you look at the people who are the terrorists. Um, you have like an Emirati, a Kuwaiti, and and so forth. We were the ones that were suppressing the militants really heavily in Iraq. We were like your best weapon against Islamic terrorism in Iraq. So we were, we were brutal towards them. Mm. And there is absolutely no link between Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. After Saddam's toppled, there is. That creates another pocket of Al-Qaeda that then becomes ISIS mm. later on. Yes. Now, the other big thing 
three letters. George Bush said that Saddam had these. Three letters. Yeah. Two. <laughs> toe trays. Yuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh Saddam has toe trays. That was the first three-letter word that came to mind. Toe. Yeah. Oil. Ah, very clever, but no. Uh, WMDs, weapons of mass, mass destruction. destruction. Okay. So basically, that's the whole argument. The issue is that's a whole lot of bogus. And after Iraq, the kind of response is, whoops, my bad. We, our intelligence said that you had weapons of mass destruction mm. and that you were harboring terrorists. Mm. We know that not to be true. And we know that Bush knew that it wasn't true. The reason why is we have something called the Downing Street Memo. Basically, what happened was the director of MI6 had a meeting with the director of the CIA. He then relayed what he discussed in that meeting back to Tony Blair in Downing Street. And there's a one and a half page uh, kind of meeting notes or summary that was taken from that meeting. That meeting, and this is kind of word for word, is that the intelligence of Iraq would be fixed around the policy of invasion. I.e., we're going to invade Iraq and we'll make sure that our facts kind of create a story that allows us to do so. Wow. And this is before Bush then goes and invades Iraq. And Tony Blair knows this. And Tony Blair has since argued, he's like, I'm really sorry. Our intelligence got it wrong. I thought that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. He he should have known better because he was told by the director of MI6 that the Americans are basically finding a reason to do this and they're kind of making up the intelligence to fix the policy. And they are building the intelligence around the policy of invasion. And so what kind of happened was that Bush was set on invading Iraq. And legally, George Bush was like, we are allowed to do so under international law because basically there was a UN resolution that meant that Saddam had to comply with UN inspecting his weapons. He hasn't complied with that resolution. That gives us a legal justification to do so. Tony Blair's argument was yes, but can we get another resolution from the UN to support what we're doing in Iraq? And Tony Blair was completely supportive of George Bush going ahead and invading Iraq. Of course, no weapons of mass destruction were found. Um, There was no real link between Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda. When the new government that was installed by the US uh, kind of had some teething issues because, you know, you're dealing with a country made up of Sunni Shias and Kurds and then the Shias get kind of control of Iraq and the Sunnis and the Kurds don't like that and then ISIS emerges this kind of retaliation to what the Americans were doing in Iraq. You have all sorts of issues and far more bloodshed than what happened in the actual Iraqi war. Blair should have known better. Now, people... I feel like that's got to be a lie in Gossip Girl, right? Like someone has to have said those words. (laughs) Blair should have known better. (laughs) Maybe Gossip Girl is just an allegory. (laughs) Life imitates art. (laughs) For UK government policy. Now, people would go, wait, if Tony Blair knew that they wouldn't find weapons of mass destruction, why would he go ahead with the invasion? Because he, he, he would know that this would blow up in his face. Um, I would say the most likely explanation is that Tony Blair's intervention had been so successful every single time. And the facts of itself weren't really that important for Tony Blair. Like the justification wasn't necessarily the important bit. The important bit was getting rid of Saddam and building an Iraq um, that would be favourable towards Britain and would also be democratic in nature. And because Sierra Leone was a success, because Kosovo was a success and because he resolved Northern Ireland, my gut is that Tony Blair thought that 
this would also blow over quite quite quickly. And the British soldiers would send in, they'd get rid of Saddam, this new government would be installed. And I don't think Tony Blair gave it all enough attention to the diverse cultural groups that are in Iraq that would respond. Because Saddam was the glue that held them all together. And you get rid of Saddam, you get three very divided subgroups within Iraq. And then I think Tony Blair thought through that. And I think Tony Blair just thought, yep, America's doing it. Our foreign intervention had been a success so far. We'll have another foreign policy win here as we kind of help police the world. On top of that, Tony Blair was involved in Afghanistan as well. So he sent troops in to support America in in chasing al-Qaeda down and getting rid of the Taliban in Afghanistan. And then on top of that, things are also going south with Northern Ireland. So the troubles come back. Oh, no. Because the IRA hasn't quite decommissioned all their weapons yet. And they haven't followed the timeline of the Good Friday Agreements. And so going into 2005, right before the 2005 election, the Downing Street memo comes out. It looks very terribly for Bush. You have, what, something like 139 of his own Labor MPs that vote or that don't support him in the Iraq war. So he's losing a lot of popular support by 2005. So in the 2005 election, they still win comfortably. They win 355 to 198, so still a pretty comfortable win. But when it comes down to the popular vote, 35% voted for Labor, 32.4% voted for the Conservatives. Mm -hmm. So it's actually very close on the popular vote. Mm -hmm. Now, after those elections, something else really important happened in 2005 for the UK. Pretty big event. After 2005? After the 2005 election, but before November 16th. When was it? When was Beckham's free kick against Greece? Is that 2001? Oh, okay, yeah. wrong World Cup. I, I was going for the London bombings, or okay. alternatively going for the London Olympics because they also won the rights they for that. Okay. Oh uh, yeah. Cool. Okay. So basically, Blair tries to push through some like um, some pretty heavy countermeasures to the London bombings. He basically wants to be able to hold terrorist suspect terrorist suspects for about 30 days without kind of having to go through due process or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, his response is, is pretty swift and it, what he tries to get done doesn't end up going through Parliament. At a 2004 Labor conference, Tony Blair before the 05 election said that he would serve one more term as Prime Minister, but that he would serve the full term. And then by 2006, there was a letter of with 17 Labor MPs that asked him to resign. Mm. And Labor's not happy. And Gordon Brown is getting really annoyed now. Mm. He was like, the deals that you're going to give it to me, by the time you actually leave, we might lose the next election and I won't be able to be prime minister. Some pretty big opponents in his own party. One was Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. So Jeremy Corbyn, really anti-Tony Blair. And Corbyn's much more of your kind of old school socialist in terms of his school of thought. Um, and so Tony Blair is under a lot of pressure. And in 2007, he steps down and Gordon Brown becomes the new prime minister uh, uh, unopposed in terms of his election. Gordon Brown then loses the 2010 election to David Cameron. Hmm. And it's weird. I look, at the, I look at the Tony Blair years and I look at Blair, Howard and Bush together and it's weirdly quite nostalgic. I don't know. Yeah. I just, 
Messi, Suarez, Neymar. Yeah, Neymar, more iconic trio <laughs> than than those three. I, I, I genuinely like Neymar. Like, what you gonna go for Jonas Brothers? Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm going Bush, Blair, and Howard. It's something I'm really Ed, Ed, and Eddie. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think Bush, Blair, and Howard is more nostalgic for me than Ed, Ed, and Eddie. There's mm. something about watching them telling us about how they're going to fight for our freedom and kill the terrorists <laughs> that weirdly takes me back to a happy time in my life where I'm grinding on Pokemon Emerald. <laughs> and so... Austin Powers trilogy. Another great export from that time. <laughs> trio. <laughs> and a trio. I didn't realize you could go for... Um, we, we could personify objects into... <laughs> mm. <laughs> so, yeah, it's weird. You, and a lot of Britain looks back at the Tony Blair years now... And you go through YouTube comment section, it's pretty divided. You go through YouTube comment section, a lot of it will be like war criminal, yeah, kind of you have Iraqi blood in your hands. And there was a trial that basically there was a trial that ran, that ran in absentia. I can't remember what country it was where they found Blair guilty of war crimes. Gordon Brown actually launched an investigation into the Iraq war, even though he supported the Iraq war. Uh, and there was an inquiry which, which uh, Tony Blair had to appear before Tony Blair's apologised for the Iraq invasion, um, but his apology is very much limited to mm. we got the wrong intelligence. Not okay. that mm. I made the wrong call with intelligence that would show that there wasn't weapons of mass destruction. At the same time, he's remembered quite nostalgically because the economy was really strong. So child poverty was massively reduced. There, were, there was significant wage increases. Unemployment was down and the economy was in a really strong state and the economy was quite equitable in terms of wealth distribution. You then go through the Tory years and we covered it on a different pod, but you go into the Tory years, we see the beginning of austerity. We actually see austerity begin under Gordon Brown and people look back at the kind of good and the proper amount of money that was given to the NHS. You look back at child poverty going down and Tony Blair did things like he gave tax credits to parents so if you had a child you could claim like a tax refund and so that contributed to reducing child poverty and our child poverty has kind of gone up a fair bit in the last five years in the mm. UK and people look back at Tony Blair and like actually it wasn't that bad under him well it seems like for at least a time he was very popular yeah and and so, so was domestically he's, he was still quite strong even during the whole Iraq fiasco just in terms of like domestic policies yeah people still- didn't really apart from being people would argue he was too heavy-handed with with suspects of the london bombings and terrorists after that okay apart from that he was pretty broadly supported with his domestic policy like if you're a hardcore tory you'd argue that he taxed way too much but <laughs> apart from that he was pretty universally liked the person mm-hmm. i'd probably liken him to is kevin rudd Obviously, Kevin yeah. Rudd didn't have an Iraq invasion to his name, mm-hmm. but in terms of just the sheer popularity of the guy and how that changed quite quickly, probably Kevin Rudd's your closest comparison. Like people do the Blair Howard comparison because they were in at the same time, but they're on opposite parties. Um, Kevin Rudd ran as a Labor right guy. He argued that he was going to be a conservative in office and he tried to kind of, you know, keep Labor to the centre rather than have it go much any further to the left than it needed to go. Mm. So I would say that Kevin Rudd's probably his best comparison mm. down here. Although Rudd certainly had nowhere near the longevity, but he could have if it wasn't for Julia. <laughs> cool. And so we will finish by reflecting on Julia and reflecting on <laughs> Tony Blyer. 
<laughs> wow. That's not me that came up with that. You look yeah. at this comment. It's, they misspell Blair to say Blair. I see. A little rearrange no. there. Yes. What does it say? Mm-hmm. And still less foreign policy credentials than Kanye with our rhyming abilities. <laughs> Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.